All right, so 20 years ago, I was in my last year of university. I was 22, so quickly do the math, I'm 42. I was 22, I was in my last year of university. I had applied for a job at a camp in Pennsylvania, and I got it, and I had never gone whitewater rafting before. So how many of you have ever whitewater rafted? Okay, a few of you have. Well, I had never done that. But for some reason, this camp decided that I was going to learn how to be a guide whitewater rafting that summer. There's no way that a camp would be allowed to do that now. But in Pennsylvania in 1997, uh, you could do that. So I found myself in a raft with six girls, 12 years of age, 80 pounds soaking wet. And the, the goal was to get to the end of the river and survive. And so I'll never forget this moment where I was, had been trained and was now relaying important information to this raft of young girls. This is how it went. I said, girls, we're in an eddy. An eddy is a still place of water at the top of a rapid, so you just sort of hang out and you get a sense of what's coming down. So I was preparing the girls for what was about to happen. And I said, do you see that big boulder downriver there? The one with, like, all the rapids around it? Well, we're going to head straight for that boulder because the only way that we can get through the river and not be wet, stay in the raft, is to get as close to that boulder as possible. And when we get there, I am going to yell, lean into the rock. And when I yell that, you all have to go to the left side of the raft and you all have to lean into the rock. Fair enough. So we start heading down the river. We're a few meters away from this beautiful big rock. I had maneuvered the raft magnificently into this rock. And I said, lean into the rock. And guess what happened? Half of them leaned into the rock. And the other half leaned away from this thing that looked like it was going to bring them to their ruin. And when that happened, the back of the raft tilted and I'm in the back of the raft. I don't know if you've ever had those slow moment dreams where you can just see everything. Well, I saw it all happen right before my eyes. The raft flipped, we went into the water, the emergency lines were thrown, it was a total mess. But I get it. I get why those girls were not going to lean into the rock. Because it looked like the very thing I was asking them to do was going to bring them to their ruin. It was completely counterintuitive, but that's the mechanics of whitewater rafting, is you need to lean into the rock in order to survive the rapid. A quote comes to mind. It's one of my favorites. Here it is. To dare is to lose one's footing momentarily, but to never dare is to lose one's life. And I don't know about you, but I've had those moments where I feel like I am losing my life. Thoreau says it beautifully. Here's a quote from Henry David Thoreau. Most men, most people, lead lives of quiet desperation and go to their grave with their song still in them. Because they're not going to dare to step into ground that feels very hesitant, very unsure, but that's the only way that they will experience life. It's counterintuitive. And when we're talking about refresh at this conference, what's even more counterintuitive is to be refreshed, to be free, 
often comes by moving into an, oh, sorry, out of our comfort zone, which forces us into our growth zone. But you don't get to the free zone unless you go through that. And I don't know about you, but I have had moments in my life where, where I feel like the song is still in me, and it's crushing me. It's, it's becoming silent in my life. There's a melancholy. There's a monochromatic, numb dustiness to my life. And I know that there's something more. It happens in the real small ways, the, the places where I know I'm not living into this abundance that God would have for me. It's happened in small ways, where I know there's a habit or an attitude or a pattern that is limiting me from this abundance. It also comes in the more, more dramatic and traumatic moments, where I am desperate for a new song in my life, because life feels very difficult. So I don't know where you all are. I don't know if you're in a season of uh, deep, deep trauma, where there's a pit that you're at the bottom of, or if there's just that sort of dustiness of life, um, or maybe you're just on the other side of that. But I have become deeply enamored with the concept of transformation, partly because I know that God is in the business of transformation, that his title is the CTO, Chief Transformation Officer of it all. And, and we don't get left in the pit. There's always something beyond. And so I am going to share a little bit from this book that I wrote. And I have to tell you, I never aspired to be a writer at all. In fact, this book was birthed about five years ago from me thinking, I think it's time for me to tell a little bit of my own story. And then as I was doing that, I started realizing there's more here than just my own story. But it starts uh, 18 years ago when I was 24 years old. I had lived a really charmed life up until I was 24. Uh, my parents, my brother, small town north of Waterloo, uh, really, really sort of beautiful bucolic scenery and a beautiful bucolic life. I mean, I really was uh, living the charmed life. And when I hit 24, I had done my uh, undergrad in Michigan. I was working in a church at the time. I was in the prime of my life. And, and then it was five days before Christmas and I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. Now, in 1998, being diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma, the, the prognosis was still quite positive, uh, which was something to be grateful for. And I really thought, I'm gonna just do this treatment thing, whatever this is. Actually, I thought I would just have surgery and it would be done, but I realized it would be long months of chemotherapy and radiation. But I was just thinking, I just gotta get through that and then I'll have a good story to tell. But then I turned the calendar, and a few months later, uh, in April of 1999, my brother, my only sibling, was killed in a car accident. This was all happening uh, at the same time, and, and God felt like he walked out in those moments for me. So I'm just going to read a portion, because actually it's, it, it's probably much more articulate than I could be right now. But I want to describe for you that time, because I don't think we can talk about our own transformation, our own sense of flourishing, if we can see where God is transforming us from. And some of us have very, very deep pits. So this is called the painful collapse. When I think back to that time, I still find it very difficult to put into words. Something significant broke in me that day, something so core and central shattered into a million little pieces. And when I think about the story of my life, 
I see it in two distinct segments, life before April 7, 1999, and life after. And it is much more than just life with or without my brother Todd. It's a much bigger divide, impacting the deepest parts of my spiritual and emotional core. It's also the place of the most profound transformation within me. The months that followed were the most excruciating I've ever experienced. With every passing day, I became physically weaker and experienced painful side effects from the chemotherapy and radiation. There was agonizing loneliness from spending hours incapacitated and alone in my apartment. There was no social media to console, distract, or make connecting with others easier. I was left haunted by my thoughts and the searing ache of loss. As the months on the calendar turned, I found myself emotionally unraveling and losing myself. Each month seemed to find me buried deeper in the pit. I could feel myself shutting down. Life grew silent. It was deafening and terrifying. This sickness, this death, this heartache was choking the faith and hope right out of me. All the color in my life was draining away. I wasn't grasping for my life with courage. Instead, I was quietly fading away. All comfort and joy were dismantled, and I felt empty-handed, boxed in, all alone, dissolving into the dark. Grief that comes from deep loss can be incredibly confusing and disorienting. The most painful part was my deep sense that God had completely abandoned me. The solid ground I had stood and built a life on was now gone. Every step felt like it could be my last, like the earth beneath me could give way, swallow me up, and I would never be found again. My heart was cut raw with grief. It was as if a million little pieces of my shattered life were daggers slicing me thin. The fear of having to live this tortured life was so overwhelming. Deep sadness spilled out of me and all over my understanding of who God was in times of trouble. I could not carry the weight of the pain. And I thought God, in whom I had placed my trust, had sucker punched me. He couldn't deal with my sadness and left me in my own on the, in the dark to drown. At least that's how it felt. And I remember stumbling across this poem by Anne Weems, captured the agony I was feeling so well, and I sent it to a few friends just a few months after my brother died. I'm just going to read a part of it. O oh God of my heart, it is your name I call when stars do not come out. O oh God of my soul, it is to you I turn when the torrents of terror drown me. O oh God of mercy, it is for your hand I reach when I stumble on stones of sorrow. O oh God of justice, it is to you I cry when the landslide of grief buries me. And I stand beneath the night where stars used to shine and remember gazing mesmerized at the luminaries of the sky until I could walk the ink-blue beneath, beach beneath their shining. And then their shining stopped, for they left the sky. And you, O oh God, you left with them. And I am left alone beneath a starless sky with a starless heart that barely beats. What's significant about me reading that now is I read that poem over and over again, alone, incapacitated in my apartment. I really thought that there was going to be no way out of the dark. And I'm here, 18 years later, and it is a miracle for me to recall that. Because 
That is the process of transformation. Transformation means to change our form. And God is always wanting to change our form. And I don't care who you are, I know that all of us are after the better version of ourselves, the better version of the life that God would have for us. So whether you are here as a staff member or a priest or a parish leader, you know, you may be asking yourself these questions, but certainly your people are asking these questions. But I think that life's greatest dare is to surrender to the transformation that God wants to do in our lives all the time. It is the greatest dare. It often feels like a double dare, and we're going to get into that. So here are a couple of questions that I think all of us, when we quiet ourselves, ask ourselves. And I think they're all sort of leading and nodding to this desire to see change happen, which is the way it all works. So here we go. Here's some questions you can see there. Can I keep becoming a better version of myself? I mean, is there even, is that a, a question that we ask? Do I want to live a full, juicy, meaningful life? Could my life feel more like an adventure than a job? Trust me, the people in your care as pastors and leaders are asking themselves this. Can I enjoy my days rather than simply endure them? Is it possible to make sense of all the pain in the world? Do I want to step into the most real reality, capital R, there is? Is there a deep flow to all of life that I can be a part of? Can I live at peace with myself, knowing I'm enough? Can joy overflow in my life? Does my story matter to God? Which question stands out to you for yourself? Which one jumps off the page for you? Well, like I said, life's great dare is to surrender to the transformation that God wants to do in me. And this next slide is the thesis of the book, and it, to me, changes everything. God isn't transforming me to be more perfect so he can love me more. God is transforming me so I can experience his love more perfectly. Think about that for a minute. God is not transforming you and I to make us more perfect so that he can love us more. You know, this idea of like perfect son be made into the image of the son so we can become perfect, right? It's sanctification in many ways, this theology. But let's remember that God isn't transforming us so that he can love us more. God is transforming you and I so that we can experience his love more perfectly. That those broken places, those pain places, those desperate places within us are being made new so that we can experience this lavish love more perfectly. Doesn't that change the motivation to step into transformation, to accept this dare? That there is this full access to abundance, more love, more joy, more peace. And God's deep desire is for us to experience that more perfectly. And that is why he wants to change our form. That's why he wants to transform us. Scripture is full of, of, of verses, examples, stories. The meta-narrative of the entire scripture is death to new life. 
We understand God's heart for transformation. And here's just a couple of verses. We're going to breeze through them real quickly. This is obviously from Paul to the church of Galatia. Here we go. It doesn't matter whether we've been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. May God's peace and mercy be upon all who live by this principle. They are the new people of God. And it's a letter to the Corinth church. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away, for the, spirit, for the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. And then one of my favorite passages, I've put it three different versions on the slide here. This is from the Gospel of John, when Jesus says the thief's purpose is to kill and to steal and to destroy. But Jesus says, my purpose is to give you a rich and satisfying life, not in the one to come, but the one right now. The rich, satisfying life, the one that's refreshing but the one that invites us to do that counterintuitive act, which is to lean in to our own transformation, to lean into the whispering of God, saying, I would love to change that part of you so that you can experience more love, more joy, more peace. So there are a number of different questions that we have to ask ourselves, but I think this is the most important one. What do you have to let go in order to grow? Another way of saying it is what has to die in us for something new to be born? What habit, what pattern, what attitude is stealing the abundance from your life? So what needs to be transformed? The rest of this evening's talk is going to make a lot more sense if you can quiet yourself long enough to hear what God wants to say to you in answer to those questions. What is God wanting to change in you? It could be something dramatic. It could be something very subtle. If you're stumped, here are a couple of thoughts. Our relationship with money and stuff. The way we treat our body, our soul, and our minds. How we spend our time how we interact with our boss and our coworkers, the relationship with our friends, the commitment to our families, our connections to this planet and all of creation, the connection to those who are different than us, our relationship with our enemies, our care of the most vulnerable and marginalized, our sexual lives, our commitment and friendship with God. What needs to be transformed? What needs to die in order for something new to be born? What is getting in the way of this abundance? So let's just quiet ourselves and ask God. Friends, I think this is an important question that deserves our attention often. Um, in the spirit of vulnerability, for me, the thing that jumps out is the way that I treat my body, soul, and mind. The second one. I have, a, I have a genius way of self-sabotaging my happiness by the way that I speak to myself. That is limiting me from the abundance 
the joy, the peace, and the love of God to be experienced in a real way. These things can be small, they can be big. But what we're going to talk about is something that I have been thinking a lot about over the last number of years, and that is this this theme of transformation. I don't want to say that there's this linear process of transformation, and I certainly don't want you to take this next sort of half hour together as this process of transformation. There are many, many ways you can talk about transformation. The two-step process, the four-step process. What I want to talk to you about are these eight themes of transformation that I think are germane to every transformation, big and small, but I think it will help us process the very thing that God is asking of us. So let's just sort of run this uh, idea that God has given you through this sort of rubric of transformation. And the handout's gonna help you with doing this, okay? So you're gonna see this diagram. And this is in the book, and this is also on your diagram. You can see that love is in the center. And as you go around sort of clockwise, you first get to open, and then you get to surrender, to vulnerability, to death. And at the very bottom, sort of there's this this action, the bottom of the heart, all the way back up to the top, and then it moves into rebirth. It's like the beautiful doorway, death to new life. Leads to freedom, and freedom always leads to more love. Love always leads to more love, and our transformation always begins with God's love for us. We just said, we talked about that already. God could not love us any more than he does now, whether we believe it or not, whether we feel it or not. But that is the purpose of our transformation, is to to have more love. But it starts with love. It doesn't start with us saying we need to change. It starts with God's invitation to, to experience more love, to rest in his love. It always leads to more love, though, and it, you don't get there, I think, until you open yourself up. And that's what leaning in to the rock is about. That is, that is what we've just done, is asking ourselves the question, God, what is it that you would want to transform in my life? That is signaling to God, I'm just going to open this door. I'm not sure I'm going to step through this, the threshold of this door yet, but at least I'm, I'm putting the, jar, the door ajar. God, what, what would you want? I'm, not, I'm staying put. I'm not doing anything yet, but I'm just going to open the door. We cannot start our transformation process or our journey until we know what it is that God is inviting us to transform in this season in our life. So that is, begins with open. And you can see the eight themes of transformation. We're going to go through each of these real quickly. Love feels like home. You know, to be rooted, to be centered, to rest in the bosom of God, it feels like home. And that is our starting place. Open, opening the door, it does feel like leaning in, leaning into that rock. Surrender feels like dancing. Vulnerability feels like bungee jumping. Death feels like letting go. Rebirth feels fragile. Freedom feels like the happy dance and love feels like we belong. And you're gonna see this in your handout, and we're gonna run through the remainder of these. We've started with love, we've talked about being open, but now we're gonna move to surrender. If you look at your own hand, you can see that as we hold on to things so tightly, we have a hard time loosening our grip and letting go, and we hold on to things for good reason, to keep us feeling comfortable, 
secure, satisfied, significant. And we hold on to these things often at the expense of experiencing more of this love and more of this joy and more of this peace. God is saying, I want to transform those things. I don't want you to have to hold on so tightly to feel so secure and so, so significant and soul satisfied at the expense of being transformed. So would you open your would you open your grasp? But what happens as you open is you are letting the most vulnerable part of your hand exposed. So to surrender this can feel really precarious. I was a figure skater when I was young. I am not a figure skater now. <laughs> and I would do all of the figure skating things, like the jumps and the spins. But for those of you who have figure skated, you know that there's sort of the jump and spin and the throw in the air kind, and then there is the dance kind. So you're with a partner, and you never really jump and spin, but you are maneuvering very, very closely together with very deep edges set rhythmically to the music, and it is a beautiful way of dancing. And so when I was past, going to pass my last dance, I was um, partnered with somebody who was an expert at the dance. And he had been shipped into my little town because I was testing a higher dance. And he was shipped in. He passed them years ago. And he kept reminding me, Krista, if we are going to pass this dance, if you are going to pass this dance, we need to stick really, really close. And you need to let me lead. And you need to just kind of let me maneuver you around as you do your steps. And it's going to feel uncomfortable. You're going to feel like you don't have as much control. And your instinct is going to want to be to pull back. And sure enough, it was like this every time we practiced. We would be dancing. We would start. It would be really, really good. We'd be close. And then as we're going through the dance, I would want to pull back because I felt like I was losing control. And every single time, we got jammed up, we couldn't maneuver quickly, we lost our timing. So it came to the day of the test, and I knew the whole time, I just have to surrender my will, if you will, into, into my dance partner. I still have to do all the steps. I still have to be an expert, but I have to sort of maneuver and, and surrender and kind of melt into him as he leads me around the ice. So sure enough, it was the day of the test. You're the only people person on the ice. The judges are watching with their clipboards, and we go around the ice. You have to go around about five times. So we go around the ice, and it's the third time around. And we get to right in front of the judges. And I am starting to get nervous, and I feel uncomfortable, and sure enough, I pull back, and our skates lock, and we fall right in front of the judges. It was one of those like locked blades and sort of fall. I, I knew instantly that I would have failed the dance. And it was a big deal for me because I was, it was one of my last tests. I wasn't going to be able to continue. My partner, he quickly just said, listen, let me go over and talk to the judges. You were doing great, but just don't pull back. Let, let me lead you. So he goes over to the judges. He pleads my case. The judges say, sure, give it another try. So we go over to the place to start. We go around a couple of times, and sure enough, the whole time I'm just saying, surrender. Let, I, mean, I don't think I said surrender when I was 18, but that's what it feels like. Let go. Let, let him lead me. Melt into him. You know, stay close, right? Surrendering the things that we hold onto so tightly feels like we're going to lose control, because we are. <laughs> 
We are literally letting go. God is not the cosmic judge waiting for me to fall. He is my partner. He picks me up and helps me when I slip. He wants me to be successful. So letting God change me from the inside out is my chance to partner with someone who wants to see me be my best and knows how to get me there. We often think that when we start letting go, when we start surrendering to our own sort of goal of transformation, that God is somehow out there watching us like this cosmic judge, hoping that we don't screw it up. But he doesn't play the role of a cosmic judge. He plays the role of the partner who wants to see us be our best. And he is saying, surrender your own control and let me maneuver you. Let me guide you through this process. But it does feel vulnerable. And I know what vulnerability's voice sounds like. It's usually high-pitched. <laughs> it's louder than I would like. And it makes me feel incredibly uncomfortable. How many of you have ever had the um, in a public place naked dream? I'm not the only one I know. <laughs> you don't have to admit it. It's an awful feeling, right? It's like, for me, it's in my first grade classroom. I have no idea what happened in first grade that I keep having this dream in first grade. But I'm sort of at my desk, and I'm naked, and all of my classmates suddenly realize it before I do, and then I realize it, and I feel incredibly vulnerable. I know what vulnerability feels like. And the closest I have come to it, other than that dream, is when I went bungee jumping. So, one of the things that I never expected to do in my life was to bungee jump. And how many have bungee jumped? Anyone done that before? Okay, so I found myself in Soweto, South Africa, and at these towers, it's called the Orlando Towers. If you Google it, you can watch a bunch of people jump off these towers. So those are the top of the towers, and this is what it looks like at the bottom. You can kind of see it, right? That little green square right at the bottom. And I, knew that I was going to have to uh, let go. I was going to have to listen to vulnerability's voice screaming at high pitch in my ear as I swan-dived off of the top. And I knew that hesitation was not going to be helpful at all, right? And in our own transformation, in our own letting go and surrendering, you are surrendering to vulnerability that high pitch, screaming loud, uncomfortable voice that is urging you to stop. Don't do it. That is what vulnerability's voice is often telling us. And like we said at the very beginning, those little girls in the raft, they had a voice in their head as they got closer to the rock, and some crazy lady in the back is telling them to lean into this rock they also felt a voice say, don't do it. Don't do it. And they didn't. It is counterintuitive, right? So here I am. I am, I am walking along the bridge. This is before I jump. What's interesting is the gentleman at the top of the bungee jump, they sort of hook you in and they get you going and they just say, just keep your eyes out on the horizon. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm not afraid of heights generally, but that, that doesn't necessarily help. I'm not really sure what else you're supposed to do. I guess they just don't want you to look down. But what they say is, 
you just have to get to the edge. And you have to put your toes over the edge. And then you're going to put your hands up high in the air. And then you're going to count down from five really quickly. And then you just have to go. You've been feeling freaked out since you decided when you pulled up in your car, right? So you've, you've been at this vulnerability voice game for a good 45 minutes now. So you're just going to get to the end, and you're just going to go, OK? So here I am, hands up in the air. Five, four, three, two, one. You can see there, this is absolutely the point of no return. There's no chance I would have ever been able to recover from that. But it was a beautiful, beautiful swan, swan dive into, uh, into vulnerability. The voice was there. I mean, it's interesting. The instinct when you are so vulnerable and afraid is to close your eyes and just you don't want to to be a part of it. That was sort of the automatic instinct. I was just glad the automatic instinct wasn't to throw up. <laughs> but sometimes that's the case as well. And when you think about letting go and stepping into surrendering that thing that you hold onto so tightly, the thing that has to die in order for something new to be born, it is going to feel like this. Plummeting through vulnerability into freedom was the weightless exhilaration I was looking for. I wouldn't trade the terrifying sense of fragility if it meant that I had to miss the thrill of feeling so alive. When we move through our uncertainty and doubt, the freedom we experience is all the more satisfying. So what does vulnerability feel like to you as you start to let go? Maybe you already know the answer to that because you are in this process of trying to let go. You're in this process of surrendering and vulnerability is at a high pitch in your world often. So you know exactly what it's like. For some of you, you might be saying, huh, that's a really good question. I don't know the answer to that. But can I encourage you to process what that might be like so it doesn't take you by surprise? Do you know that the definition of exhilaration is excited and terrified all at the same time? I have found in my life that the things that are really worth doing, the things that really add up to something, are often exhilarating. But it's not comfortable. It comes, it feels like at a great price. It's terrifying, but it's also exciting. And do you know, we're, we're wired for this vulnerability because Jesus has been there. There's a passage in the book, I'm not going to read it, but it talks about all of the places of vulnerability that Christ would have encountered in his final 36 hours. Over and over again, he is being invited to surrender and to let go. We see it in other stories in the Gospels as well, particularly in the desert. When Jesus is tempted, he's being tempted to hang on to satisfaction and hang on to significance and hang on to security. Instead, he's being invited to let go and to trust and align with his Father, feeling all the vulnerability that comes with the letting go. So what does that look like for you? The reason why it feels so vulnerable, guys, is because it's surrendering to a death. Remember, if you look at the heart, it starts with love, open, surrender, vulnerability. But vulnerability for what? Because you're surrendering these things to their death. 
something must die in order for something to be made new and to make room for something new. Selfishness must die to make room for generosity. Anxiety must die to make room for peace. Lies must die to make room for the truth. Pride must die to make room for compassion. Perfection must die to make room for I'm enough. Addiction must die to make room for love. And fear must die to make room for joy. When Jesus says, come, pick up your cross and follow me, those who will lose their life will gain it. That's what he's saying. What, what do you need to lose in order for you to gain this abundance? What do you have to pick up and then let go? What's on that cross? What needs to be brought to death in order for something new to be born? That is the question. And so here it is. What needs to die in you and I in order to make room for something new? Let me just say now that there are things in our lives that we are always going to be surrendering and feeling vulnerable and hoping will die, and, and, and we won't actually get to the other side of the rebirth place in this lifetime. There are many, many things that God is and wants to and has already transformed in our lives. Tomorrow morning, I'm talking about what does it mean to keep going when you just don't know if you can anymore? And what does it mean to keep going when you keep surrendering to the vulnerability of these deaths in your lives? And it doesn't seem to go anywhere. We're going to talk specifically about that tomorrow. But it is a question for us to ask ourselves, right? It feels really strange to ask a question about what needs to die. It's not something our culture asks very often. Sadly, in Christian circles, it's not a question we often ask either. But it is the Paschal mystery. It is, it is the way of truth and life is letting go and letting things die in order for something to be made new. But on the other side of death is rebirth. Not birth, not something new that's never been made, but rebirth. Something that was once dead has now been resurrected back to life. It's been made new. I don't know who said it, but it's said often around Easter time. It's not resuscitation. It's resurrection. It's something being made completely new. I'm not going to talk a lot about it tonight, but the, the butterfly, which I mentioned in the book, has this unbelievable metamorphosis. And I know that I didn't know the ins and outs of what happens in the chrysalis, but the, the, the moth, or sorry, the um, caterpillar, it actually has to die completely. It's not like the caterpillar just decides to grow wings, so it's like a caterpillar with wings. It's not that. In the chrysalis, the butterfly, the, sorry, the caterpillar kind of eats itself alive. The digestive juices that it used to sort of eat the stuff that a caterpillar needed to eat actually turns on itself and eats itself. So the caterpillar dies before any butterfly emerges. There's like these sleeper cells in the chrysalis. And and sort of something emerges, something, something is reformed out of this death. 
and it is the caterpillar. It's really, really remarkable if you just YouTube or Google anything about the caterpillar, you'll be amazed. But you know what? Rebirth always feels very fragile because you're sort of getting your wings and you're not really sure what does it mean to now live in this way? When an old habit or attitude or pattern dies, or a tragedy that just is starting to lose its grip on you, you do feel fragile. Rebirth feels very, very fragile. And I remember having this dream about a, almost a year after my brother passed away. And I explain it in the book, but in the dream there is this, I was this pine tree. And I was this pine tree that was cut right down. You couldn't see anything. It was just the roots. And then in this dream, there was this little shoot that came out of these pine tree roots. And before you knew it, it was one leaf, and then another leaf, and then another leaf, and another leaf. They were small, they were translucent, light green leaves, and it was a very, very, very fragile tree. And in the dream, I just remember thinking, how is it possible that a leafy tree can come out of the roots of an evergreen tree? But that's exactly what I was doing. I was learning how to move in this world as a sister without a sibling. I was learning how to move in this world as a cancer survivor. I was learning how to move in this world as somebody whose faith had been shattered and was still very fragile. And when we have habits or attitudes or patterns that God has been transforming in us, you know, those early days of stepping into this new way of being can feel very fragile. We can kind of see the old patterns just sort of sitting right here. Rebirth feels fragile. I had a group of friends who got the picture of this dream painted for me for my 40th birthday. And here's the painting. And the blue in the background is that evergreen tree that's kind of ghost-like and fading into the background. But then there is this strong, new, leafy tree that's emerging from these deep, dense roots. And I don't know if you can see it right here, but the artist, who was a friend of mine, she said that that is a girl. And that girl is hunched over, but not, she didn't actually say this part, because I didn't tell her this part in the dream. But, but when I saw that, she said it was like a girl hunched over, and I was like, that's so interesting. And she says, because there was just so much pain. And I said, no, that girl is not hunched over in pain. That girl is hunched over, gathering strength from the deep root. And she is about to emerge with a sense of flourishing. But you know, when you're like this, and you're just gathering strength, and you're just holding it together, it does feel very fragile. But it is a beautiful image that you're not kicked in the gut on the other side of death. You are just composing yourself with the strength of this deep, deep root of Christ who has never left, who's always been the root, even when you can't see it, and even when the tree feels like it's been destroyed and destructive. But you know what? Rebirth always leads to freedom, more freedom. We don't know, we're not reborn to something new. This old thing hasn't died unless we have an experience of freedom. And freedom feels like the happy dance. You know, the first half hour of this talk is of drag. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's something that we try to avoid. We try to just sort of be like, yes, Lord, I'm open. Can I just stick to the, get to the happy dance now, the free part? No. Comfort zone. 
out of our comfort zone into our growth zone, which leads to the free zone. And I have had a place in my life where I have seen the transformation of God um, over the course of many years very, very acutely. Uh, I'm, like I said, I'm 42 years old, I've never been married, and I don't have any children, and it is not the place in my life I expected to be. I always anticipated having a family, being married, having children, and, and it's just not my story right now. It's not a place I expected. But I want to read a portion of my own version of what it feels like to step into some new freedom as God transforms us. For many years, I thought I was single because I was somehow defective. I wondered if something was inherently wrong with me because no one had chosen me. I was trapped in thoughts that had me struggling. I was drowning in insecurity and doubted my beauty, my femininity, and my loveliness. There was nothing freeing about these thoughts and feelings. The chains, they had me locked up tight. After years and years of struggling, I started to surrender. I started to get brutally honest with how sad I was feeling. I began to acknowledge how lonely I felt instead of keeping busy with distractions. I began to ask God to help me when I felt unlovable. And perhaps the biggest surrender, the biggest vulnerability, the biggest death came when I faced the prospect of never marrying at all. It's here that I've had to ask myself some very tough questions. Do I actually believe God is good and has my best interests at heart and can be trusted? Seriously, can I actually trust him with my relationships, or should I take matters into my own hands? As I first began processing these questions, the thoughts of never getting married or having children felt like I would be shackled in the death zone for life. Like that Anne Weems poem that I found after my brother died, I wondered if I would be, quote-unquote, left alone beneath a starless sky with a starless heart that barely beats. There had never been a time in my life when I thought I wouldn't be married or have children. Surrendering to these questions was new territory and left me feeling unsettled, uncomfortable, and even afraid. Over the years, though, God has been transforming me. I've learned to embrace the vulnerability and am learning to embrace the vulnerability of my fear. As I write this, I can see how God is slowly helping me change the old pattern of insecurity and self-sufficiency and inviting me to rely on him in new ways. Something new has been born in me because I've allowed something I've held onto so tightly to die. In truth, something new continues to be born and is growing into something unexpectedly beautiful. God is giving me a calm confidence to keep walking this way. My desire to get married is not gone, but it's changed. It's not like I've turned into a marriage hater and have gone all bitter. I've not sworn off marriage, and I don't feel like I've been given the specific desire to be single my whole life. I still feel all the vulnerability as I stay open to what God would have for me, marriage or not, and what path he wants me to follow him on. But God is transforming my heart. The image of what my future will be like is less about the specifics and more about the adventure of what God will do when I rest completely in him. I'm becoming less concerned about being quote-unquote normal by being married and more interested in embracing the courage and the creativity that's required to live the life I've been given today. Don't get me wrong, I still have restless moments of doubt and longing, wondering if God actually knows what he's doing. 
I'm still a work in progress and wrestle to find where my needs for intimacy and companionship can be met. But as time passes, I'm finding more freedom in this area of my life. It's not making me more independent. It is pushing me closer and closer to my Father who knows my needs. I'm less concerned about the details of how I'll be cared for and more enamored with the journey. Ironically, radical dependence on God feels like beautiful freedom. Ironically, radical dependence on God feels like beautiful freedom. Transformation always leads to this beautiful freedom. The place where we thought we couldn't let go, we now let go, and we find, we find God who is meeting our needs. But we didn't expect nor trust. We would hope, maybe, that that was the case. But ironically, radical dependence on God feels like beautiful freedom. I don't think radical dependence on anybody generally feels like beautiful freedom. It's ironic. That's what we call marriage, right? We say it's supposed to lead to beautiful freedom together to, to discover someone as we're radically dependent on each other. But I'm not sure that's the way we see marriage, is it? Interdependence is the way we're wired for freedom. And it starts with God. So here's a question. What if this place that we're bringing to God tonight was actually transformed or healed or made new in you? That there was this freedom that you would experience in this area of your life. Would that lead to more love for yourself, for others, for God? Love always leads to more love. That's the transformation process. And then it starts again and again. And out of the places that we have been made new, we're being invited to more transformation and more transformation. And he is in the business of redeeming and restoring all things to himself. For me, you can see that that sort of radical dependence on God in my life as it relates to being single has led to more love for myself. I don't feel defective anymore. God has been transforming that part of me. It has led to more love for other people. You know, instead of sort of shying away from the conversation, I find myself talking with people who are single and struggling a lot. And it gives more love for God in my life because I see that he does care and provide and meet my deepest needs. When I think about other places in my life that have been transformed or are being transformed, I can see where being healed and freed up and made new in those areas would lead to more love. And we need more love flowing in this world, don't we? It starts with each of us being made new in those places, but it, it begins with our, our great surrender, our being open. Another thing that's happened as a result of this book is I really felt like I was writing this book out of this sort of deep gratitude to God this sort of gratefulness that I had not remained in the pit. And it felt miraculous to me when I started writing this five years ago. So I kind of decided as it was turning into this book thing that other people were saying, you know, this is probably should be consumed by other people than just you <laughs> and your parents. 
I said if I ever write a book, I would love to be able to give the proceeds away. And so 100% of the proceeds are being given to the Love to Love Project, which is helping vulnerable children in Syria, the safe spaces that World Vision is providing for children in Syria, half the money is going there, and then the other half is going to MCC, Mennonite Central Committee. And over $37,000 has been given. This is an example of love leading to more love. And, and I don't know what the potential is even in this room to unlock the love that God wants to release into the world because of your own transformation. Whether it's the love that you release into your families, whether it's the love that you release into your neighborhoods, into your church communities, into your employment, what is the love that wants to be released because of your own transformation? Not only the love that you experience, the abundance that you experience, but the ripple effect. Love always leads to more love. <clears throat> I'll close with this, and then if there's any questions, we'll take them. As I look back on my life, and in particular the most remarkable transformation of being reborn out of personal tragedy, I know that risking it all and daring myself to surrender to the process of transformation is worth it. I know that leaning into vulnerability, even though it feels like I'm losing the very life that keeps me feeling safe, is the pathway to becoming this best version of myself. Sometimes my prayers to be changed are more of an obligation than a desire. But deep down, I know that I really want change. I want to respond to God nudging me out of my comfort zone. I want to trust him in the hard places instead of distracting myself with things that numb the fear. I want to live expectantly, knowing one day everything will be as exactly as it should. I want to trust that this adventure is more compelling than sitting down and not taking another step. To consider that the journey toward this complete whole life is worth all the struggle. I want to walk toward abundance with boldness and confidence because the one in who has the power to change everything is changing me. God isn't transforming us to be more perfect so he can love us more. He's transforming us so we can experience his love more perfectly. I want to keep going, and I want you to keep going too. So here's a promise for us to cling to. God, like no other, transforms cold, dark places and makes them beautiful. He mends the broken, and he refreshes the weary. He restores the smoldering and the dying and gives hope for new life. He really does make all things new. And he's promised to make you and me new too. And I'll close with these words from Paul, from Philippians 3. I'm not saying that I have this all together, that I have it made, but I am well on my way, reaching out for Christ who has so wondrously reached out for me. Friends, don't get me wrong. By no means do I count myself an expert in all of this, but I've got my eye on the goal where God is beckoning each of us onward to Jesus. I am off and running, and I am not turning back. Thank you so much for your attention tonight.